This episode is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Geoengineering. The word probably conjures up, if it makes you think of anything at all, planes taking off on short-haul flights, spraying obscure chemicals into the air in a perhaps futile, perhaps accidentally catastrophic attempt to stop the sun from being so bright. But does it have to? Although that's the popular and much feared image of geoengineering, it's not all that the term implies using giant undersea kelp farms to lock carbon into the oceans, or even much more innocuous things, like restoring forests to pull down carbon from the air, what's called carbon sequestration. All this could also be understood as geoengineering. The writer Benjamin Bratton uses the term geoengineering to refer to any large-scale attempt to modify the planet's composition, and that's the sense in which I'm going to be using it here. But why is any of this necessary? Of course, you've probably seen the graph, maybe the most important one of our lifetimes, which shows carbon dioxide steadily ticking up in the atmosphere, despite all the words and promises on climate action. The world meets for the first Conference of the Parties, or COP, in Berlin in 1995, and the line keeps going up. In 2009, the Copenhagen COP brings a rush of optimism, as the world's then largest polluter the USA, seems finally ready to step up, and then, at the last crushing minute, doesn't. And the line goes up. The 2015 Paris Agreement proves the most important to date, and the line goes up. In 2021, the Glasgow Climate Pact is adopted, and the line goes up. Sometimes people on the left respond to talk of geoengineering by insisting that we must instead focus all our energies on emission reduction. It seems clear enough to me that we are well, well past that point. We're going to have to do something, except just cut emissions when it seems we can't even do that. But what? That's where talk of geoengineering starts, and where the conversation gets arguably really very dangerous indeed. Inside the broad spectrum of geoengineering projects, of course, there is the infamous planes plan spray aerosols into the upper atmosphere to make the sun's rays bounce off the planet, instead of getting stuck in its atmosphere, as happens in the greenhouse effect. This is called solar radiation management. Then there are the high-tech plans to do direct air capture and storage, DACs, or what's called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECs. In these technologies, carbon dioxide is pulled from the atmosphere, either through a direct chemical process or through being made into plants and other organisms. So far, these technologies capture about half an hour of global emissions a year. If all goes to plan, with present funding, that will rise to about two and a half hours a year by 2025, or approximately one three thousand five hundredth of the total emissions we make. But there's one plan for a kind of geoengineering, although not everyone calls it that, that promises not only to lessen our climate change troubles, but also enhance the beauty of the landscape 
and increase biodiversity, a crucial task if we're to respond not just to the climate crisis, but to a broader set of crises in nature. And that plan is to bring back the woolly mammoth. Okay, that has been proposed, and I think it would be quite cool, but it's not what we're talking about today. Instead, I want to find out about rewilding, slightly closer to home in the UK, with creatures and plants that we don't have to de-extinct first. My name is Richard Hames, and in this episode of Navarra FM, I talk to some of the people involved in rewilding projects about what they're doing to transform landscapes, how the politics of land is changing in the UK, and about the role of ever-controversial carbon credits. And of course, I also spoke to some rewilding sceptics, those who are suspicious, particularly of the political implications for those of us who are not billionaires. I was curious why I had only ever seen things that felt either like adverts for rewilding or like signals that I should pretty much ignore it entirely. Was there a way through the thicket of rewilding projects and their often grand claims that could take us not just to a transformed forest for the rich to frolic in, and the rest of us to never see, but to an entirely transformed and much wilder world. So what is rewilding? I always say rewilding is about hope. It is about offering a solution for tackling the nature and the climate crisis. And if we get it right, we create a cascade of benefits for people. And when we talk about rewilding, what we're talking about is large-scale restoration of nature to the point that nature can start looking after itself once again. That's the voice of Richard Bunting from Trees for Life, a rewilding charity based in the UK. So whereas traditional conservation was about protecting a species here or a habitat there, rewilding is taking a more holistic, bigger approach, a bigger, bolder approach, really. And it's about allowing nature to start restoring itself. Richard told me that this idea of nature restoration is particularly relevant for Britain, which is... One of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. Uh, human activity of different forms has, has, has shredded ecosystems, has, has got nature into a very poor state. Biodiversity is going through the floor and, and different wildlife species are, are, are suffering. They're in decline. Sometimes they're crashing towards extinction. Sometimes they've gone extinct. The problems Richard told me that rewilding could address were not limited to individual species. Areas like woodland, native woodland, um, our river systems, ponds, Areas of coast which have seagrass, peatlands, all of these, they are, these are really powerful carbon sinks when they're healthy. So the idea is that by restoring these landscapes to a healthy state, we can get them to draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Some landscapes are better than others for doing this. If you take peatlands, for example, when they're healthy, peatlands are among the world's best carbon sinks, but when they're damaged, they start emitting carbon dioxide instead. And Britain has some globally important peatlands, but 80% are in a poor state. Uh, they've been managed in such a way they become drained, they become burnt, they become fragmented and damaged. But Richard didn't seem to think that rewilding was a panacea. And he certainly didn't think that it meant that we could carry on with business as usual everywhere else. The direction of travel really needs to be seriously making efforts to bring carbon emissions down or the greenhouse gas emissions down, not just signing up to a carbon sequestration, carbon offsetting program, and then acting as if it's business as normal, because, because that's kind of a nonsense, and equally investing in major nature-based solutions. We'll come back to those carbon offsetting programs and the controversies around them a little bit later. 
But there are still further reasons to care about rewilding, Richard told me. Scientists around the world are saying the next pandemic is already on its way. If, if we keep shredding habitats and if we keep mistreating wildlife and species and not having that respect for the natural world, we allow viruses like the one behind COVID-19 to more easily leap between species. So in terms of nature, in terms of climate, in terms of our, our health, whether it's pandemics or our day-to-day -day health and our day-to-day -day survival and well-being, nature really, really matters. The sounds you're hearing now behind me are from a live stream hosted on the website wilding.radio, that's the full URL, which broadcasts a continuous stream of sounds from NEP in West Sussex, perhaps the UK's best known rewilding scheme. The lower clicking sounds are from the organisms in the water, and the other sounds are, well, birds. You can hear just how extraordinarily alive the landscape sounds, as well as a few planes overhead. The process Richard Bunting was just describing, in which shredded ecosystems are more liable to release dangerous pathogens, was backed up by a 2010 study published in Nature that found that biodiversity loss increased disease transmission. This process is called zoonotic spillover, viruses and other pathogens moving from an animal host to humans. It's how we got diseases like SARS and MERS, two novel and extremely dangerous coronaviruses. These are big claims for rewilding. Protecting and enhancing biodiversity, helping to fix the climate crisis, and protecting against new diseases. Some people are of course very sceptical of these claims. But even more of the criticism of rewilding has concerned its political and economic impacts. Whatever benefits it may have, say critics, they tend to happen at the expense of almost everyone except the super-rich, who can afford to buy tens of thousands of hectares of land. Richard Bunting told me about a particular rewilding initiative, one that promised to be significantly more equitable, that I was keen to hear more about. The community of Langham's now purchased 10,500 acres of the Taras Valley uh, in Dumfries and Galloway. I'm Jenny Barlow, so I'm the estate manager for the Taras Valley Nature Reserve and I work at the Langham Initiative. Just north of the Scottish border lies the community of Langham and it's currently the site of one of the most exciting rewilding projects in the UK. When you look at it, it's really beautiful sort of upland landscape and there's some, there is some really stunning bits of it and there's some really beautiful, um, rich habitats within that. But there's something missing in the landscape something the lack of which we've gotten used to in Britain, says Jenny. There is a significant absence of trees. You haven't got that kind of really rich structural like vegetation of like, when you look at it, a lot of our landscapes that we're used to in Britain, it's like 2D. You've got like the big dramatic hills, but there's nothing else. So I think it's like you're kind of missing all those structural elements to a landscape. That's an example of the kind of degraded landscape that Richard Bunting from Trees for Life was telling us about earlier. Some of the other kinds of damage that had been done to the land were quite striking. There's a fair 
proportion of the nature reserve, which is sort of upland, heather moorland, which is quite traditional, kind of like what we'd associate with the uplands. It used to be a grouse shooting estate uh, before the community bought the land. So the land's been um, burned to keep the heather uh, for grouse in the past. It's been drained and a lot of that moorland is like peatland and um, so it's it's had drainage and this is I, I this management isn't sort of like specific to this landscape it's very you know typical of like a lot of our upland landscapes across the uk peatlands as we already mentioned are incredibly important carbon sinks so their mismanagement can have catastrophic knock-on effects that's similar to what's happening on some of the areas of scotland that richard was telling me about earlier one of the problems we have at the moment in scotland is we have out-of-control deer numbers. And deer numbers are also kept at artificially high levels by, by sporting estates in Scotland, so where people can, can uh, wealthy individuals can come along and spend a, a not insignificant amount of money to, to, to shoot deer, to hunt deer. Now, the problem is we've got too many deer, no apex predators, and, and deer love eating baby trees. So that creates problems whether you're planting trees or trying to encourage natural regeneration because the forest doesn't really stand a chance of regenerating. Grouse shooting and deer hunting. In short, the decimation of the landscape is linked pretty directly to class. And let's not even get into golf courses. I also spoke to Ed Hamer, a farmer near Dartmoor, a huge moorland in Devon in the southwest of England. And he told me that bad land management on the moor had also affected what might seem to many to be the very symbol of a pristine landscape in the UK. Dartmoor is an inherently managed landscape. You know, I, I've, like I said, I've grown up on Dartmoor. I lived here all my life. In my lifetime, I've seen Dartmoor change as a direct result of what I would class as misguided intervention policies. And those are largely around destocking the moor. Um, so over the course of my lifetime, we've seen a destocking of around 50% of, in terms of um, the amount of um, cattle and sheep that have been on the moor um, year round. Um, and just in the last 12 months, Natural England are proposing another 80% destocking um, of those, those numbers. Um, those are primarily aimed at reducing what they see as environmental impact of um, overstocking. So they would argue things like poaching around rivers, poaching of the soft peat uplands. Uh, in my experience, what I've seen through destocking is a reduction in a, a diverse habitat. So if you look at photos of the moor from the Victorian times, which is probably our earliest photos, the moor is carpeted in close-cropped heather. Um, it's a ling heather moorland um, because there's a, a high stocking rate that's basically managing a lot of the invasive species, so particularly gorse and bracken. Um, is being managed and allowing the shrub layer to actually really um, flourish, um, which in itself supports a huge diversity of um, butterflies, invertebrates and, and birds as well. Although they might seem natural in some sense, and that concept does a lot of work for those who wield it without specifying exactly what they mean, these landscapes, the grouse moor, the sporting estate, are actually highly controlled environments, structured by decisions humans have been making for centuries. That's the opposite of what rewilders want. One of the problems we face with rewilding in, in Britain, really, one of the big challenges is around mindsets and the way we think. And rewilding offers us an opportunity to take a fresh approach, to start working with nature rather than against nature, and, and to recognise we, we, we can't always control the outcome. And that really can be really exciting. 
One of the reasons that Britain is in such a bad place at the moment is because we are such a neat and tidy nation. For example, we, we, we still have an, a Victorian era mindset about controlling nature. So what do people actually do to rewild landscapes, apart from leave them alone as much as possible? One of the interventions Jenny told me about at Langham had delivered extremely quick results. We felled a conifer plantation, replanted it with native woodland, and then we've done lots of sort of wetland scrapes and sort of ponds within that. In six months now, they're full of life. So, you know, you can start to see it coming back. Um, It just needs to be given a chance. Another way is through the reintroduction of species which are no longer present in the area. Most importantly, one particular type of species. We are missing an apex predator, and that has massive impacts on ecosystems. It, it affects what's known as trophic cascades. It creates ripples through the ecosystem. Negative ripples if you don't have those uh, apex predators, and positive ripples when you do. Trophic cascade is a powerful process of ecosystem change that happens when one particular population is suppressed. In some cases, the cascade starts at the top of the food chain and goes down to the bottom. For example, the introduction of an apex predator can lead to a decrease in its prey population, which can then lead to an increase in the population of the prey's prey. Uh, There are no apex predators left. We've driven them all to extinction, and the biggest apex predator we've got pretty much is the fox in Britain now. The most controversial of all species who might play a role in rewilding is probably, and probably for good reason, the wolf. Even for people who don't have a narrow view of nature, the wolf is often a bridge too far. But Richard was pretty clear that their reintroduction was a way off, if ever. Wolves, realistically, aren't going to be coming back into the wild anytime soon. They they do have a really bad public relations image. Some people found them very scary prospect, admittedly. And and you'd also have to put in plenty of measures to ensure it was safe. That that it's very unlikely that wolves would attack people, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility. So so most rewilding charities at the moment are saying, look, Scotland isn't ready for wolves at this point. But even for those not scared of wolf attacks there's sometimes an anxiety around rewilding that these kinds of interventions into ecosystems can have wide-ranging and somewhat unpredictable effects. Effects which we would do better to avoid causing accidentally. There's a story about the reintroduction of the wolf into Yellowstone National Park in the US, that it changed the flow of the river. It went something like this. The wolves preyed on the herbivores, who had been grazing on the riverside plants. And, more profound than simply eat lots of them, this injected fear, causing them to graze in different patterns away from the exposed riverbank. The river, with a greater density of plants growing on its banks, changed its sedimentation patterns and diverted its flow elsewhere. That's a good example of a trophic cascade through an ecosystem. The plants grew back indirectly because of the wolves. This story points towards just how complicated ecosystems can be. But we might also say that rather than throw our hands up at the complexity of it all, we can also admire the sophistication of our own models of these ecosystems. The ecologists managing the project didn't know exactly where, but they did know that the river was going to change its flow. It's these kind of transformations that ecologists and rewilders are often looking to effect on the landscape, Broadly predictable in their overall effect, unpredictable in their details. But even if wolves are off the table for the foreseeable future, 
there have been tentative plans amongst rewilders to reintroduce other apex predators. Realistically, the, the best candidate would be the Eurasian lynx for a reintroduction. Uh, there's no record of a, of a lynx attacking a person. And many of our neighbours on the continent in Europe coexist very, very well with lynx, even in areas far more densely populated than Scotland, places like Italy and Switzerland, for example. It's not, says Richard, a particularly dangerous animal. The lynx is a shy ambush hunter, tends to keep itself to woodland. Probably uh, its main prey will be roe deer, which we've got far too many you know, in Scotland. They're, they're out of control in terms of the numbers, so that the, the, the ecosystem's out of balance. But it's not just a reduction in the sheer number of deer. Like with the example of the Yellowstone wolves, the deer's behaviour would also probably be affected by the reintroduction of an apex predator. And the main impact actually probably wouldn't be the amount of deer they take, but they would be injecting this element of fear into the landscape. The deer have learnt that they can graze with impunity without any fear of predators anymore. And the, the, the impacts of that on, on regenerating woodlands and other vegetation, and therefore on all sorts of other species, are, are, are extremely profound. The reintroduction of apex predators, of course, grabs attention. But Richard was keen to stress that you need much more than something big and scary to change an ecology for the better. We also need to remember that there are many other species that play very, very important roles in, in ecosystems. As, uh, often these are called keystone species. Equally, though, you can drill right down and the small creatures play a very, very important role as well. So in insects, for example, extremely important if we want a functioning planet and, and natural world in which we can all survive and thrive. There's one particular keystone species that has become incredibly important to the idea of rewilding in the UK, the beaver. About 400 years ago, they were hunted to extinction. Beavers play an outsized role in the ecosystem. We don't want beavers in the wrong place. If they can cause damage to agricultural land, for example, they can cause localised flooding. But beavers in the right place, in suitable habitat, have a remarkable impact. They're ecosystem engineers par excellence. They are brilliant at creating nature-rich wetlands because they build dams. These create these nature-rich wetlands that benefit insects, small mammals, and bird life, and amphibians. But they also purify water. They can reduce flooding downstream. This is the dams and the wetlands, and sequester carbon dioxide. The beaver is a well-known ecosystem engineer, although some, like Ed the farmer we heard earlier, are worried about overstocking it or having too many in a small area, which might displace the otter. But more surprising given their bad reputation is the role that cattle can play in rewilding. We are starting to now look at how we can increase uh, biodiversity with sort of conservation grazing. How can we use sort of grazing animals like cattle to bring diversity back into the landscape? Not exactly an apex predator, but an important way to transform the landscape and, deployed correctly, enhance biodiversity. Sometimes in these interventions, there can seem to be a trade-off between carbon sequestration and biodiversity. Sometimes what you end up with doing, happening, is, is, a, is the planting of non-native trees like sitka spruce, and, and because they soak up carbon dioxide, but they're, they're rubbish for biodiversity. Jenny told me that in this trade-off for Langham, biodiversity comes first. 
we aren't just planting trees for carbon. We're planting trees for biodiversity. It's an ecologically sound sort of woodland restoration. And then it has those sort of secondary benefits that it, it, it sequesters carbon. When it comes to trees, for biodiversity, there's nothing as good as an oak. One of those trees alone can host like hundreds of other different species. They're like an ecosystem in themselves. So that's why we're really keen to get the next generation of like grandchildren growing in the forest so we can preserve them and, and we can create those sort of um, really rich networks of ancient trees and new forests and start to sort of get that real richness back into the landscape. And crucially, these are the kinds of interventions that make landscapes not just fit for insects, but for people as well. Some of our ancient oak trees, they, they, they're incredible. It's like walking through sort of like Lord of the Rings or something when you're walking through those forests. This human experience of being in these forests is something that many critics of rewilding are worried won't happen in many of the bigger, privately owned projects. With Langham, the plan isn't to exclude humans from the landscape. And we'll come back to this worry that rewilding excludes people soon. But none of this focus on biodiversity is to say that Langham is indifferent to the climate crisis. Aside from the carbon capture that biodiverse landscapes intrinsically do, those peatlands that Jenny mentioned earlier are also being restored. Obviously, that's a huge source of carbon that's just washing away as those ditches are draining water away. Again, flood risk, you know, all of those things contribute to sort of wider environmental issues. Um, so we're working with the Scottish government through peatland action to start to block up those ditches. So obviously, when you're starting to look at talk about climate change, flooding, wildfires, the more that you can sort of restore all those natural processes in the land, you're helping the landscape to be more, become more resilient to climate change as well as um, restoring the land for nature. With the restoration kicking off, forgotten species are already starting to reappear. We've had golden eagles visiting us um, from the south of Scotland golden eagle project. They have not been seen in this area for a very long time um, and we had th we've had three visiting us the last couple of weeks um, so it's really exciting because you know it, it like I said I know we were saying earlier like it takes a long time to see change but actually once you start putting things back it is amazing how quickly things can come back. Despite these amazing images of Lord of the Rings trees and golden eagles as well as increases in the less glamorous species like moths and mosses, which indicate the real health of the system, Jenny said that the transformations she is predicting aren't perhaps as visually dramatic as we might expect. Certainly nothing on the scale of what might happen if you reintroduced a woolly mammoth. People always say to me, oh, what will this landscape look like when it's being rewilded? And I think it's not going to be this like dramatic change. I always say it'll look more like a rich patchwork quilt of lots of different habitats, uh, mosaic together. And, and I think that's what we're really missing. We're missing that diversity of so many different habitats. That rich patchwork is important for producing what are called edge effects. Edge effects are the changes in population structures that occur at the boundary of two different ecosystems, such as a forest and a grassland. These effects are produced often by rewilded landscapes, but they can also be useful to increase the kinds of biodiversity useful for farming. That's according to Ed Hamer, the community-supported agriculture farmer that we met earlier. If you look at the edges, what we're looking at is producing corridors for um, 
for wildlife to be able to transition from one side of the farm to the other. We're looking creating edge habitats where you have different layers of um, natural herbage um, going up through to um, uh, shrubs and then um, pioneers uh, and trees um, into the woodland. We'll come back to Ed and his model of farming, agroecology, a little bit later, as well as the complicated relationship between farming and rewilding more generally. Langham feels like a win-win on the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. But Jenny also told me it was having an enormous positive impact on the community. Langham suffered uh, in the past. It's a traditional sort of uh, textile town. The industry and the the big employer for a very, very long time was the textile mills here. They've moved. There was a massive job loss, you know, a huge economic dent on the the town. Um, And, you know, it's taken a long time to recover from that. And I think there's been, you know, huge efforts locally to support regeneration and provide opportunities for young people that are growing up here um, and provide that sort of economic um, revitalization of the town. When the land here came up for sale, buying that land was seen as a way to support regeneration, but bring in like a nature-based approach into that regeneration. And crucially, they bought the land as a community. The level of support they got was pretty amazing. The first buyout started, um, it it was in the middle of lockdown. And I think it was just something really hopeful. Um, You know, a really hopeful story about a community trying to do something. Um, And also the fact that anybody could help to make it happen. So anybody from any walk of life could donate to our crowdfunder. So we have people donating anything from a fiver, uh, you know, right up to the, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of donations we got. But it wasn't just the support of this global community of crowdfunders that helped out Langham. It was also the Scottish government. In total, a land uh, buyout, as we've raised £6 million to bring this land into community ownership. We've also had public funding, so we've had £2 million of Scottish land fund money as well. So that's the money that the government set aside each year to support community buyouts and community asset transfers in Scotland. Those democratic beginnings in a crowdfunder and with public money, have meant that the local community has much more control over the project than it often does in similar rewilding projects. There was loads and loads of engagement done in the beginning to set out what we wanted, uh, like as a collective. So, you know, it's been really clear from the beginning, um, you know, we're we're creating a nature reserve. This is a a means to support community regeneration, um, You know, we want to do our bit for the climate emergency and we want to restore nature at scale. And throughout the project, there will be continuous community input, much like there is for Navarra Media. Just like Langham relied on people giving to causes they believed in, we couldn't do any of this without your support. And for us, there are no Scottish government grants. That's why we're asking for an hour's wage a month, or whatever you can afford, to fund independent, truthful media. Thank you. All right, back to Jenny. The Langham Initiative is like the legal owner of the land. We're a community development trust and we're set up to run for the benefit of the people that live here. It's a really participative approach. So we're in the middle at the moment of creating a five-year plan for how we're going to run things. We're doing loads of events, workshops, getting people out onto the land, getting people talking, going out to see people, going to events. 
So at the moment, we're at the stage of what do you want to see? What is important to you? So we're just ask, going out asking those sort of fundamentals and then that's going to help us prioritise. The long-term aspects of the project are designed to have benefits for the local community as well. Ecotourism, that's something we're really keen to do, bringing more visitors here and then it has those wider impacts locally as well with more people coming to visit and stay potentially, and this is definitely potentially um, carbon credits. We'll come back to the matter of carbon credits and how they might allow for the community to become more sustainable in a bit. I also wanted to know how the idea of community rewilding was spreading beyond just Langham. Richard Bunting told me, We hope the Langham or community buyout can provide a, a blueprint for other communities. And I, we're seeing people at, at a smaller scale buying land for community, you know, for community woodlands, community nature reserves, smaller rewilding projects. That, that seems to be happening increasingly frequently. But the reality is sometimes that can be a huge challenge because land prices are going up all over. And why are land prices escalating so quickly? That perhaps requires a longer historical view. England in particular has always been, aside from a very brief period, a rentier economy. It's an economy of landlords, aristocrats and essentially asset-owning parasites. People have always had to fight for access to land and this access has been steadily lost through various kinds of enclosures and privatisations right up until the present day. That's Nick Beret, a lecturer at the University of Essex, who will have much more to say on questions of land ownership later. We probably don't have to go all the way back to the 17th century to understand at least some of the politics of land in the UK now. Although that was the century that we failed to grasp the opportunity for serious land reform that the Civil War represented and thus ended up sullied with some of the most powerful landowners in Europe. That's an important consideration in everything that follows. And so too is the problem that the class of landowners has faced for centuries now, which, put cynically, is how to make land spit out cash. To get to the start of the modern story, we can jump to just 1962 and the implementation of the pan-European common agricultural policy. Ed Hamer, the farmer we met briefly earlier, thinks that's one of the main reasons for our modern focus on intensive farming, and with it, the way we value land. And that was based on the premise of ensuring food security um, for Europe. There was a strong emphasis on overproduction um, and an emphasis on producing as much as possible. And there were, there were subsidies basically to buy surpluses. So farmers would be incentivized to, to produce regardless of the market. Uh, and there was an um, intervention which would step in and buy any produce they couldn't sell on the open market. And that obviously resulted in massive environmental um, impacts throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s. So Ed says that a particular style of intensive agriculture and all the environmental problems it causes, problems of the kind that rewilders are trying to undo, is tied not only to the question of land ownership, but also to the problem of European food security and the subsidies regime that it produces. But the common agricultural policy is not the only thing to change the economic benefits of land ownership in the modern period. Also crucial to this story is the role of the World Trade Organization in the mid-90s. There was a slow transition to move away from production-linked subsidies to area-based payments. 
where farmers were paid simply for the amount of land that they owned. And that was introduced in 2005. So since 2005, we've had, well, up until two years ago, we had something called the Basic Payment Scheme, where farmers were paid a flat rate, averaging about £100 per acre per year, simply for owning land. Um, and the idea was that subsidies should then subsidise um, food production and encourage food security still in the UK. Ultimately, what it tended to do was to, again, intensify production. Um, those farmers with um, the largest land area were able to claim the largest payments. And they then capitalised those payments in terms of buying extra farmland and also investing in machinery um, and fertilisers and synthetics, again, to boost their yield. What Ed is describing is a sort of cycle of intensification in which big landowners are able to use their existing position to make more and more money. And the basic payment scheme for land ownership encourages land speculation, in which the price of land increases with the possibility that it might pay out even more in the future. That's not so different from what's happening now. And again, we're up against a kind of investment struggle where if you, you know, before 2005, when um, we introduced land-based area payments, um, an average acre of land around here was about three to four thousand pounds an acre quite quickly after 2005 because people were capitalising those um, single farm payments into buying more land. We saw an inflation period. And now today you're probably looking at around 10 to 15,000 pounds per acre to buy farmland, which becomes prohibitively expensive, expensive if you're a new entrant farmer just looking to get a foot on the farming ladder. But of course, the common agricultural policy came to an end in the UK when it left the EU. So for the last few years, there's been the question of exactly how to make land ownership profitable, once again outside the European agricultural policy. As well as the old question of how to ensure the profits of big landowners, there's the role that the UK government is bound to play in mitigating climate change. And as well as the carbon goals, there are those adopted at what's called the COP15 on biodiversity by the United Nations to protect 30% of the world's land by 2030. It's in that context that rewilding might fit in, and why community projects that try and follow Langham might not be able to act in the same way. That's of course not to say that rewilding will stop, if anything, the inverse, but that it might look even less equitable than it does now in the future. One piece of relevant legislation here, which Richard Bunting told me about, is called the Environmental Land Management Scheme. The UK government at the moment is is putting forward a new uh, scheme called the Environmental Land Management Scheme. Now, if if they put their money where they their mouth is and they deliver, we, then that could be very beneficial for wildlife and nature in the country because the, the intent there is to to um, subsidise farmers, to pay farmers, to 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 deliver public goods like carbon sequestration and less flooding, flooding and, and better air quality more pollinating insects by rewilding the marginal land. But when you look at the economics of land ownership in the UK, it becomes clear that even legislation designed to protect the environment can be a tool of what Nick Beret, the lecturer at Essex we spoke to earlier, would probably call class warfare. Huge proportions of income for farms in the UK in particular come from subsidies. Two thirds is from direct payments. 80% plus of profits come from financial support. Now this has changed with the the leaving with Brexit, with the leaving of the European Union and the end of cap subsidies that were over a one and a half billion a year to UK farmers. There's a new scheme that's looking set to 
hand out something like two and a half or just shy of two and a half billion a year to farmers. Now, why this is important is that the way that they've created the system, you know, it's, uh, it was initially designed or said to be designed to support sort of the natural environment, sort of the, the ecological aspects or the environmental aspects of land management in the UK. What it's actually going to do is funnel money towards the largest landowners at the expense of smaller landowners, much like CAP. This two and a half billion of funding arrives in the context of eye-watering inequality. Just 432 individuals own 50% of privately held land in rural Scotland. Although community ownership has been growing since the early 90s, it still accounts for only 3% of the total land area of Scotland. And seemingly driven largely by speculation over returns on carbon credits, in Scotland, land prices have jumped by 87% in the last year. The Scottish Land Commission, in a recent report, said that opportunities relating to natural capital have become an increasingly important driver for estate acquisitions in recent years, with green investors interested in carbon offsetting, forestation, renewables and rewilding, increasingly competing with lifestyle and sporting buyers. That's a major shift in the way that land is valued, but there's perhaps an even bigger shift in the way we value land underway as well. As the Scottish Land Commission also wrote, agricultural land quality is no longer the key determinant of farmland value, due to increasing influence of capital from outside agriculture. Instead, the natural capital and afforestation potential of land is an increasingly critical driver of demand due to timber prices, competitive forestry grants, and carbon offsetting markets. Rewilding schemes and the payouts they give to landowners make ownership of land more valuable then the land itself becomes more valuable. To meet its climate targets, the UK is probably going to have to increase its payout still further. It's that seeming inevitability that has produced a rush on land. And who is buying all this land? It's companies like oil major Shell, which is supporting the Glengarry Forest Scheme, and insurance and pension companies like Aviva and Standard Life. Nick pointed out that although projects like Langham feel inspirational and are, most rewilding projects are quite different, either designed for profit or controlled undemocratically by billionaires, or sometimes both. The norm is private landowners increasingly making use of government subsidies or private capital to create rewilded spaces that will then be used to secure carbon credits within an an economy of offsets that will then enable other companies to continue to pollute. And there's a coherent tradition on the left of opposition to projects like rewilding. If I was going to characterise the left's position on rewilding from just a a, a set of assumptions, it would be that it's just, just another example of some sort of horrific imposition of a conservation agenda that pays no attention whatsoever to people's actual needs or the inequities or devastation produced through land use, climate change, and exclusion. I would have assumed a a social justice perspective would look at rewilding as just a a rebranding of the sort of violent imposition of conservation politics of the past hundred years. He's not opposed to any and all rewilding, of course. A cooperative model is a far better model, and it will deliver far better outcomes. But, as he says, most rewilding projects are not cooperative, 
and we shouldn't see rewilding as a panacea. So if rewilding projects seem essential to restoring biodiversity and assist in mitigating climate change, but they also contribute to horrifying inequalities, what are we to do? A report last year of Community Land Scotland recommended that the Scottish government introduce a, quote, new statutory power to apply a public interest to all land holdings in Scotland above a certain scale and or concentration. That goes hand in hand with more community funding, as Richard Bunting said. There needs to be a way forward that finds a way that allows communities to become more empowered, to be able to purchase land and with, with, with significant support from, from the government. It wasn't easy. And if communities, to, to be buying land at landscape scale, it requires a lot of thought from government, really, on the land reform side and in terms of the support for communities, you know, to, to ensure there's proper, proper funding as well. If we want an equitable solution to climate change and the biodiversity crisis, it seems like we'll need to expand government grants for community projects. That's because the landscape scale that Richard mentioned there is really important. To be transformative, rewilding really does need to take place at huge scales. And changes in land prices have put such huge projects well out of reach for pretty much any community scheme. But there's also another complication here. Because as projects get bigger, and therefore more ecologically effective, under the current system, they also tend to become more and more the preserve of billionaires. And as Nick told me, they also tend to become less inclusive of people. Nick provided me with a concept that I thought was useful for understanding this, and which stuck with me. Enclosure. I knew that enclosure named a period of history in which people were forced off the land and away from the system of common land, but he was talking about it as an ongoing process. I think it's worth noting that there is a long history of enclosure back from various conquests and displacements all through the Middle Ages, right up until the, sort of the, the, the key period of enclosure. Sort of what enclosure is useful for now is to describe an ongoing process insofar as that land has been lost, land is enclosed, uh, ownership, particularly say in England, is incredibly concentrated. Something like 25,000 landowners own half the country. 30% of the land is still owned by aristocrats. We never had our French Revolution. The guillotine never really saw much uh, production time in the UK. Households typically own about only about 5%. So, you know, the land is parceled out in an incredibly unequal way. And this is a, a consequence of conquest, enclosure, but also privatisation. With community schemes like Langham, excluding people from the land is not part of the plan. But for many other schemes, funded by billionaires and huge corporations, Nick posed an important question. When we think about enclosure, it's worth thinking about how this system is organised and then how rewilding plays into it. What role does rewilding play in this ongoing system of privatisation and enclosure? And then exclusion. The more inclusive approach at least from the perspective of who gets to use the land, sounds much like what the Land Workers Alliance call land sharing, not land sparing. Ed Hamer, a member of the Land Workers Alliance, articulated this for me, although he was keen to point out that he was speaking in a personal capacity. Crucially, as a farmer, his idea of how rewilding should work didn't even have to exclude food production. 
we very much support a land sharing approach. Uh, we see the two contrasting issues that basically land sharing is about um, integrating food production with uh, rewilding in certain areas of the of the countryside. And it's a recognition really of um, an agroecological approach to farming. So it's a recognition that we can learn from observing natural ecosystems and applying um, biological systems that we observe in nature to agricultural systems. And through doing that, we argue that you can create a balance, a matrix of um, bio-intensive um, agroecological production units alongside small parcels of wild, rewilded um, nature. This vision of a tapestry of countryside spaces integrating both rewilded areas and food production is what Ed opposed to the land sparing approach in which huge blocks of rewilded land require the further intensification of agriculture on other land. And I would argue the biggest failing of that approach is um, it misses the opportunity for, um, firstly, for job creation in the countryside, and also it hands control of our food system to an ever smaller um, group of um, uh, players who are able to, to produce food with high, high input, high intensive techniques. So what attracts people to these huge rewilded spaces without any people in? Part of the answer lies in ideas about the value of a pristine nature. But perhaps a bigger and more economically rooted answer is carbon credits and the carbon markets on which they're traded. Carbon credits are a type of permit that allow an individual or organisation to emit a certain amount of greenhouse gases. In some industries, if you want to emit more than your share, you're required to buy credits off someone else. The more demand there is for these credits, the higher the price the less polluting members of an industry can get for them on the market. This is supposed to incentivize people in the industry to do less carbon-intensive things. A similar scheme is one of the main ways that the car company Tesla has made so much of its money in the last decade. These schemes can be extremely lucrative, pumping out billions of dollars for the beneficiaries. In recent years, the use of carbon credits has also become controversial, with some critics arguing that they allow companies to continue emitting greenhouse gases without actually reducing their emissions. An investigation by The Guardian, the German newspaper Die Zeit, and source material found that more than 90% of the carbon credits for forest projects issued by Vera, the world's biggest certifier of carbon credits, were in fact worthless. I'd say that criticisms and concerns around the carbon credits market are often valid, as are concerns around greenwashing by some companies who are, are, are bandwagon jumping onto that market and calling what they're doing rewilding sometimes when it really isn't. Ed Hamer was also sceptical of the use of carbon credits, although his target was a little bit different. Firstly, it kind of moves away, it moves to a land sparing approach where we basically ring fence a large area of the uplands to be purely rewilded to then enable maybe arguably urban-based consumers to continue with a level of consumption that they've got used to over the years and offset their guilt uh, and the impact of their um, consumer lifestyle uh, by buying credits in the uplands. So that's, that's partly a, a, a cultural philosophical opposition. But his objections were also quite practical. The danger of um, large carbon sequestration projects like this is it creates a, um, a, a market for land speculation. 
So it creates an opportunity for investors to buy up land um, and subsidise rewilding projects with the intent purpose of sequestering carbon and then selling those credits to other investors. Partly it basically undermines the, the availability of land for new entrant farmers and for productivity. To, for people to actually get onto land to actually farm it rather than for it to be rewilded. But um, maybe more importantly still, it actually inflates land prices. It creates a bubble where investors can reinvest, recapitalise their, um, their profits into buying up more land and are able to outcompete particularly new entrant farmers who want to just buy five or ten acres just to start up an enterprise. Jenny told me that when it came to the use of carbon credits, the Langham Initiative wasn't quite sure. I would say on the carbon credits side, if it's done properly, it could, you know, be a long term sustainable revenue for a community project like ours, which means that it brings climate benefits. We can restore the land and it also brings a sustainable long term revenue um, to a community and those benefits cycle back locally. But at the moment, I think there's a lot of room for sort of greenwashing and things not to be done uh, ethically. This kind of uncertainty is usual. It seems like the reasonable position. The problem with carbon credit markets, I increasingly thought, is that they're set up to benefit exactly the same class of people responsible for the problems they are trying to solve. Or, in the words of the London Edinburgh Weekend Return Group, a Marxist group from the 70s who wrote the classic book In and Against the State, resources we need trap us in relations we don't. In this case, rewilding on a sufficient scale traps us into the institutions of capital, whose drives have led us to the very climactic precipice on which we are now standing. It's the recognition of this strange bind that might point us beyond the crude oppositions of rewilding good or rewilding bad. So how does rewilding fit into the kind of world we might want? In their book, Half-Earth Socialism, Drew Pendergrass and Troy Vitesse write of an urgent need to, for the sake of our very planetary survival, rewild much of the Earth. Aaron Bastani's interview with them on Navara FM from last year might form a kind of high-theory complement to the somewhat messier concerns of this episode. Here's a short clip in which Troy explains how he sees the difference with more conservative forms of rewilding. How do you have... Uh, lots of new nature parks while also having space for uh, human flourishing and renewable energy and everything else. And that's what we try to explain in the book. And it's half for socialists because we don't think that E.O. Wilson and other conservationists have the the means to achieve their aims because they are too conservative. They depend on uh, philanthropists and rich people to to help realize their their dreams, which simply won't work, and they uh, don't have a way to understand the crisis, and they tend to fall back to Malthusian explanations, which are deeply troubling. There is, to put it bluntly, a contradiction between the kind of equitable rewilding that we urgently need to do and the institution of private property. That's pretty similar to something Nick told me. One of the things I think we need to address, you know, and it the cooperative approach to rewilding goes some way in that direction, but possibly not far enough because it still relies on being able to purchase the land or uh, require a private deed to a land, is how do we tackle the question of distribution of land in a fundamental sense? And rewilding really doesn't like, touch on that in any substantive way, nor does it touch on who has the ability to say what happens where. 
there are also a ton more nuanced questions in rewilding, from the endlessly fascinating interactions between species, the question of different possible scales of rewilding, the politics of exclusion and food production, the importance of history in considering who owns the land, and the centrality of carbon credits to our current imaginary of how to engage with the climate crisis. As well as, of course, the inspirational story of Langham. I'll give the last word to Nick, who gave a sort of rallying cry for rewilding's radical future. Rewilding can play a role in the future, sort of, you know, in our ecological future, but it can't be done as a series of exclusions. You know, it's the private preserve of aristocrats. If land is redistributed, if the land is made democratic, if we're going to be honest here, if land is seized and taken from those who do not deserve it and treat it badly, we could look to restore ecosystems across the UK whilst enabling people access to that land. So that is to restore the landscapes of the UK without excluding people from them. This can be done through selective rewilding, through agroforestry, through greening our urban spaces and our ex-urban spaces, literally by looking at land as not something separate to us, as something that we necessarily have to destroy to engage with, as a space that humans and non-humans can work together in a way that's productive of human flourishing and ecological flourishing. We can't do that while it's held in private hands. We can't do it while it's an asset for hedge fundies and all of their mates to profit from We can't do it while it's just a preserve of a bunch of aristocrats who want to shoot stuff and burn the moors. We have to have that land. We have to take it from them. They can't have it. Our futures collectively depend on us taking it from them. My name is Richard Hames, and this has been Navara FM. Thank you to Jenny Barlow, Ed Hamer, Nick Beret, and Richard Bunting for talking to me for this episode. And thank you for listening. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.